Welcome to Culture Bites, where we take culture theory and turn it into everyday insights. We're powered by Human Synergistics, and our mission is to change the world one organization at a time. We can only do that together with our amazing community, so thank you for listening. Welcome to Culture Bites. My name's Dominic Gawley. I'm a consultant with Human Synergistics Australia, and this week on the show, I've got a very special guest, Michael Bungai-Stanya. Hi, Michael. Dominic, I'm so happy to be here. We've been dancing around trying to set this up for months, it feels like. So at last, the moment has come. It's perfect. It's the moment. I love it. And part of the advantage, because usually you're over in Toronto as the founder of Box of Crayons, which is a learning and development company that helps organizations move from advice-driven to curiosity-led. Yeah. So I'd love to learn more about that. But the reason why we finally found the time to have a dance is you're in Australia at the moment and originally from Australia. I am, you know, I uh, born in Melbourne, but really grew up my whole life in Canberra, went to high school here, went to university at the ANU, and I would probably still be here or maybe somewhere in Australia, but I won a scholarship that took me over to England some 30 years ago. And not only did I kind of study at Oxford, but I, I, the real thing is I did two things. It stopped me becoming a lawyer because I did an arts law degree at ANU and I was a terrible lawyer. I'm a terrible <laughs> law student. To the extent I, I literally left being law school being sued for defamation by one of my law professors. So it really wasn't going well. Well, but I guess you got a firsthand experience. I, yeah, exactly. I'm like, oh, this is how the law world works. It's even worse than I thought. But I met my wife when I was studying at Oxford as well. So. For that reason, one of the, partly that reason, we haven't been back to Australia to live, but I came back to visit my parents, particularly during this kind of COVID time where mm. it's all a bit weird. And so I'm currently, I'm literally recording this from my childhood bedroom <laughs> where I grew up, which is, you know, slightly odd, but it's fine. <laughs> I love it. It's quite a story, isn't it? Yeah. Michael, t- tell me more about, so we, we're going to dive into some books you've written, and that's probably how people know you. Mm-hmm. But I'd be curious just to learn more about Box of Crayons as far as the advice driven to curiosity led. What does that mean? Yeah. Well, what you're seeing there is a, an evolution of a company. So Box of Crayons has been around about 20 years. I founded it when I moved to, to Canada before that I was living in Boston, moved up to Toronto right at the end of 2001. And I got a temporary job but then I got fired from it because I wasn't very good at it. So in desperation, I started a company. <laughs> I'm like, I'm basically unemployable. I've been working towards being unemployable my whole life. I finally got here. But because I was living in a, you know, I was living in a new city, I didn't really know anybody. My business model when I started Box of Crayons was I'll do anything for anybody with a pulse and a wallet. I mean, really, I, you know, <laughs> I had assorted experiences and skills like I could worked in the world of innovation and creativity. I'd done a lot of facilitation. I'd done a lot of market research. So I could kind of do a bunch of stuff, but I didn't have a business model. It was only to like, I need money to buy groceries and survive. Uh But maybe four or five years into it, I found a niche, which was teaching coaching skills in organizations. And I got there in part because I was really irritated by the way that was being done because mostly... What was happening is companies were reaching out to organizations that trained individuals to be coaches and went, we'll just train your managers to be coaches as well. And there was so much that was wrong with that (laughs) because the experience of coaching somebody internally as kind of a relationship with an employee or a, a direct report or just somebody with whom you work, 
it's different in all sorts of ways from the relationship a coach has with their coachee in a kind of more formal professional way. So I was irritated and excited. Excited because I was like, you know what? Coaching is a really powerful leadership technology. It is a way of leading that is underused, underappreciated, and extremely powerful for unlocking potential, driving bottom line results, changing a culture. Yet it was being taught so badly. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I need to redo that. So I, I spent the next 10 years refining that approach and kind of growing the business and you know, we were getting hired by bigger and bigger companies. You know, some of the big banks in Canada, Microsoft, Salesforce. We were really starting to have our approach to coaching, which can be summed up by going, we're trying to unweird coaching. <laughs> we're trying to make coaching feel like it's an accessible everyday skill for anybody. You don't have to be kind of mm. woo-woo HR. Anybody can do this. <laughs> yep. And so for many years, our tagline at Boxer Crowns had been, we teach people to coach in 10 minutes or less meaning the coaching conversation can take less than 10 minutes. Because what that does is it directly addresses one of the key barriers to coaching in organizations, which is I don't have time for this stuff. Mm. What we found, you know, a year ago, I stepped away from being the CEO at Box of Crowns and a colleague of mine, Shannon Minifee, became the CEO. And what she inherited was the start of a transition for us as a company, which is we didn't want to only teach coaching skills. We're like, what else can we do out there? Because if it's only coaching skills, we're a little bit boxed in. So, you know, we worked around our marketing positioning and we're like, okay, the deeper foundation behind coaching is a commitment to curiosity. Mm. But curiosity isn't just about, let's have a coaching conversation. Curiosity allows you to be more strategic and be more thoughtful about, well, where are the opportunities for us as a team or an individual or an organization? It is at the essence of the diversity and inclusion work, which is I'm curious as to who that person is across the table from me beyond the labels that I can give them. You know, it's foundational to innovation. And, you know, innovation is one of the ways organizations continue to grow and thrive and, you know, do blue ocean strategy. So we think curiosity is a skill that everybody talks about. Oh, yeah, we like curiosity. And in fact, there's research that says, you know, executives in organizations tend to think they do a really good job at nurturing curiosity in their organization. And all the junior people in the organization tend to think they suck. And we're like, you know what? That's an opportunity. So that's why they're kind of the new language, relatively new language for us around from advice driven to curiosity led. I love that, Michael. And I think it meshes very well with our philosophy as well, which is around that, you know, in our language, self-actualization and, and humanistic encouraging that, you know, Leading with curiosity, asking the question, right? Right. And I mean, we're very driven, like you guys are, yeah. to go, look, there's a bigger win for us, which is how do we make organizations people-centric, you know, putting totally. people, remembering that there are people working in these organizations and believing fundamentally that an organizational structure is effectively a dehumanizing structure. Because mm. they're like, this, we, we're trying to get you to do a role. <laughs> it's mm. just the nature of the beast. So it's about addressing that tension and trying to allow humans to flourish within an organizational context. And I think curiosity is part of that. 100%. I love it. And Michael, that then took you on a, a course to write a book, and you've now got a follow-up to that. And it's probably how people mm -hmm. know you is The Coaching Habit, which is a fantastic book. I've read it myself. Thank you. And it's really, as you were kind of talking just before, it's 
not aimed at coaches. It's actually aimed at managers, aimed at people inside businesses. Though I must say, Michael, as someone who does coaching, it was pretty helpful for coaches too. <laughs> you know, it's been, I had a very clear person in mind when I wrote that. It's, I think one of the secrets to writing a successful book is if you know your intended audience, because mm. then you're writing for a type of person, which makes it just a little tighter and not trying to write for everybody, which means that things get a bit flabby. And so for me, I was going, look, I'm trying to write for a mid-level manager, perhaps nudging to a little more senior. She is ambitious. She likes her job. She has a decent team, but she's kind of tapped out. She's like finding it hard to lead more effectively. She's feeling overwhelmed and tired and exhausted. And she's trying to go, how do I change my leadership to free myself and free my people to have more impact in the work that I do? Mm. So that was my kind of, in my mind, the person I was writing for. But part of the Honestly, the unexpected joy and success of the Coaching Habit book was that it resonates much more broadly than that. So there's a lot of coaches who write to me going, <laughs> you know, my favorite ones are people who go, God damn it, I just did a 12-month coaching course and I've actually <laughs> learned more in your book in the three hours it took me to read it than I did in that whole 12 months. I'm like, yes. <laughs> yes. But also like parents, you know, parents are writing to me going, mm -hmm. you know, I'm using some of the principles in this book in terms of how I manage my teenager and it's, they're working surprisingly well. So that's also really cool to hear. Yeah, I love it. So it's got application beyond the initial purpose perhaps. Well, you know, part of it is because it's not about how do you become a coach. Mm. It is really at its essence, how do you relate to other human beings? Mm. <laughs> and you know, I sometimes say, look, if you're a human being that interacts with other human beings, there will be something useful in this book for you. Because no matter what your type of relationship, whether it's a formal work relationship, whether it's a parent-child relationship, you know, a literal parent-child relationship or a kind mm. of metaphorical, weird, you know, therapy parent-child relationship, <laughs> sure. if you stay curious a little bit longer and if you rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly, that's the definition we use for being more coach-like. It, it often works out better. So it's just a useful human skill to show up and be more engaged with the person in front of you. A hundred percent. And, you know, it's, it's funny after reading the book, when I was reading it, I think, oh, you know, I could totally use that in my coaching practice, you know, in the formal sense. But so many situations after reading it, when it's in the front of your mind, you're like, oh, like here's a moment in day-to-day -day life. So it's not even at work, actually. It's just in day-to-day -day life that the same stuff applies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Michael, I mean, honestly, yeah. you know, one of the questions in, you know, the coaching habit book says oh, seven good questions mm. and here they are. And one of the questions, which I call the best coaching question in the world is AWE and what else? So AWE, awesome. So it's literally an awesome question. And, you know, if you're married to somebody or in a, in a relationship, a long-term relationship, or even a short-term relationship with somebody, <laughs> just ask and what else a few times. And watch how the conversation shifts <laughs> because you're like, look, you're being present and curious with your partner. They will appreciate that. I can promise you. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think Michael, you know, it's a great point. So in, in the coaching habit, you know, it was kind of a book that outlined, you know, what is coaching? What are some of the principles and those key questions that you just started touching on? Mm. And what we're really going to get to today is your new book, which is The Advice Trap. Right. But I think they go together so well. It really builds, the advice trap builds on the coaching habit. So maybe just as like a really quick recap, which I know is probably sacrilege to do. No, but, it's not sacrilege at all. But, but, um, but I, think, I think of these two books as the Beyonce and Jay-Z of the coaching world. So <laughs> they're, they're a perfect pair. There you go. I like that. 
And actually, Michael, that's a when you say that, it's a great point. It's one of the reasons I enjoyed these books, actually, is that you use a lot of metaphors and fun kind of ways of explaining stuff, which makes it very readable. And uh, you know what? I mean, I just have a, a grudge against most business books, which is they're terrible. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, yeah. they're overly long. They tell old stories. Mm-hmm. They don't have a sense of humor. They mm. take themselves way too seriously. Mm. And honestly, part of the success of these books has been my mantra in writing a book, which is, what's the shortest book I can write that would still be really useful? Mm. So I'm like ruthlessly cutting out all the kind of the filler and the fluff. And I'm trying to have some fun because I love a book that makes me laugh. And I'm, you know, maybe I'm just a frustrated stand-up comedian, but <laughs> I'm just trying to get a laugh or two out of people as I write this book. Oh, now's your chance. I love it. Um, <laughs> so, Michael, if we kind of go, you started on the seven essential questions that you, you wrote mm. out for coaches. And it's part of that whole thing of staying curious a little longer. So before we kind of yeah. rush to advice, how do we stay curious? So, you know, what are those seven questions? Well, here's what I'm going to do, Dominic. I'm going to give some of the seven questions because oh. I don't want to give all the oh, answers Oh, I like away. it. Cliffhanger. So I'm gonna, I'm t- I'm, I love it. So everybody who's listening in, you're like, I am literally teasing you <laughs> and making you go, I need to find out what the other questions are. How will I do that? I love it. And of course- one way is you just Google it because there's plenty of stuff being <laughs> written that share all the seven questions. But if you're really smart, you'll just go and buy a copy of the book. But anyway, let me give you some of the questions and how they work. Mm. But actually, I'm going to start somewhere slightly different, which is I want to tell you about the first chapter of the mm. Coaching Habit book, which isn't about a, a question at all. It's about habits and habit building. And I say that because what I want people to do as a result of these books is to change the way that they work, change their behavior. I don't want it just to become another accumulation of knowledge. I want you using the damn questions. Mm. And it's really hard to change your behavior. That's actually what made me write The Advice Trap, which is a deeper dive into behavior change. It is hard to change your behavior. And that's why I start with this chapter on, let me explain just a really simple approach to habit building that you can use for coaching, but also for anything really. And it, it draws on you know the knowledge of people like BJ Fogg and Charles Duhigg and other people in the habit building world to say, look, here's the new habit formula, one, two, three, learn that. And then you have a chance of incorporating this knowledge into the way that you work. But enough about that. Let me give you some of the questions. So I'm going to give you the bookend combo to start with. Mm. And this is actually questions number one and questions number seven in the book. But I want you to think of them as a combination because so much of this approach to trying to, let's call it unweirding coaching, is just to understand that what you've got are some processes that will work most of the time and trusting the process. So I think a really good way to start most conversations is, hey, what's on your mind? What's on your mind? You know, it's what Facebook uses as a prompt to get you to start writing. But the power of what's on your mind is A, it tells you that you don't know what's on their mind. Uh (laughs) So you're actually curious about it. So often you actually think you know what they want to talk about. Mm. So often you're wrong. Mm. But what's on your mind doesn't say, hey, what's up? Or, hey, tell me about stuff. It says, what's on your mind? Tell me what you're thinking about or worried about or excited about or angry about or curious about. Tell me the thing that is most present for you for us to talk about. Mm. And you know, if you buy into this idea, you heard me talk about a little while ago about if you can't coach in 10 minutes or less, you don't have time to coach. 
what's on your mind accelerates you in to a powerful conversation more quickly. Because one of the great points of resistance around doing this is a fear of you start a coaching conversation and it never ends. <laughs> You're like, oh, I'm in therapy. Uh-huh. And I'm now, I now need to have 60 minutes and a couch to lie down on to actually have this conversation. And you're like, don't have time for that. What's on your mind gets you into the real conversation fast. You know, and so, for instance, if you work in a typical organization and you're a manager of some sort or a leader, you'll likely have one-to-ones with some of the people on your team. And so many one-to-ones are tedious, right? Because it's mm-hmm. like, okay, you're going to report out on all the stuff you've done in the last week or two. I'm going to pretend to be interested. They're going to pretend to want to tell you. <laughs> um, and it becomes this ritualized covering your ass experience. Mm-hmm. It's probably, you've no need to put a not suitable for work. Label on this, <laughs> no, I but think you know, you're okay. It's like maybe in the States you'd have to do that. It's okay <laughs> We're in, in Australia, Australia. Now, That's right. Yeah, exactly. But if you go, all right, here's our one-to-one, right? Let's get, you've, got, you've got a lot of things going on, Dominic. I'm sure most of it's going fine. So what's on your mind? You know, how can I be most helpful? Mm. Now you're into a fast conversation that starts changing the way that you run one-to-ones. It's just as one example of how to use that. Especially, but Michael, because – oh, sorry, yeah, I was going to say, especially because sometimes if you start doing the small talk at the start, the small talk takes up the whole 10 minutes or the whole half hour, whatever you have. Or, exactly. you're, or you're like, oh, holy crap, you know, we've only got – Five minutes left, quick, coaching, coaching, you know. Right. Or even if you're doing your best to actually coach them and you've got 45 minutes, but you've kind of been meandering towards the actual challenge, Mm. you suddenly go, oh, my God, (laughs) what's happening? We've only got five minutes left. We spent 40 minutes trying to get close to the problem and we haven't got there yet. Mm. What's on your mind gives you a chance to get into the real conversation fast. Mm, I love it. Let's pair it up with question number seven, which is the learning question. What's on your mind is a kickstart question. Number seven, the learning question. And before I tell you what that question is, I just want to frame a key insight behind it, which is one of the most effective things you can do as a leader and a manager, so in the context of work here, is to help people learn, is Mm. to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. But to do that, you have to understand how people learn. And it's actually not you telling them stuff. Not really. Most people, when you tell them stuff, they just forget it pretty much immediately. What happens is when you can set up what's called double loop learning, which is when they reflect on what they're just learning. So what the learning question does is at the end of every conversation, it creates a a pause where you allow the learning and what's useful to emerge and get kind of embedded in the brain. So the learning question is, hey, what was most useful or most valuable here for you? Which is a great conversation. What's been most useful or most valuable here for you? And, you know, we can try this with the people listening to this conversation now. You know, Dominic and I have been talking for, I don't know what, 20 minutes, 25 minutes maybe. Yep. And we've kind of covered a lot, touched on a bunch of stuff. And I know you've been nodding along and going, this is so entertaining. Dominic's such a good host. And (laughs) Michael, you know, a little self-obsessed, but he's doing fine. But, you know, if I asked you, hey, of everything that we've covered so far, what's been most useful or most valuable for you so far? you can feel your brain working suddenly differently. Mm. You're now reviewing what was said. You're remembering what stood out. You're forgetting the stuff that didn't stand out. You're re-articulating to yourself what you're taking away from this. Mm. And already, just by asking that question and having you answer it, we've increased the value of this podcast to you because you've now embedded a learning that you're more likely to remember. Mm. The, The bonus of it, Dominic, is that 
when you ask the question, you know, what was most valuable here for you? And, you know, the person goes, well, it was this. What that also does is it gives you feedback as the person asking the questions about what worked and what didn't work, what to do more of, what to do less of next time. Mm. And just reassurance that actually something was useful or valuable as well. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It supposes that it was useful, which is quite a good starting point as a coach. Well, that's why the question is not, was this useful? Mm. Because that's just a terrible question on all sorts of levels. Because it's yes, no. If they say no, that's terrible. (laughs) (laughs) But honestly, they're probably not going to say no. They're probably going to say yes and make up some flimsy reason why it might have been useful. But if you go, what was most useful? It just says, look, there's at least one thing that was a little bit useful here. Tell me what the most useful thing was. Mm. And you'll get a real read on just how powerful that conversation was or, or not based on how they answered that. Yes. And so it's a great feedback for coaches as well. So. I love exactly that, Michael. Right. So, yeah. so those were a, a couple of the seven questions. You've got to read the whole mm. coaching habit to see the others. But, you know, I guess building on that, because you talked about the role of a leader, the role of a manager is to help people learn. And you mentioned that, you know, people don't really learn from actually being told what to do. They have to come to their own conclusions, make up their own mind mm-hmm. about that, which leads us quite nicely to your follow-on book, which you've just written, which is The Advice Trap. Nice segue. Thank you. <laughs> so what, what is the advice trap? Why did you write this book? Yeah. And I wrote it because even amongst the success the coaching habit has had, and it's now sold, I think, about 800,000 copies, so a lot. <laughs> and, a lot. You know, just as an aside, I spent three years getting this turned down by publishers, so I self-published mm. the book. So mm. you can imagine how smug I feel that it's gone <laughs> on to be such a big success. And- I do get, honestly, I get regular emails from people (laughs) talking about how much they love this. In fact, I'm just going to pull up something on my computer because it was, there we go. So there's this tweet (laughs) that came through, somebody who's in the US military. Mm. And I just saw it yesterday and I copied it. He says, man, I'm rereading The Coaching Habit, which preaches the listen first and listen more than listen more. I got so pumped about being able to help because I've been able to work in a great org that I forgot to STFU sometimes. <laughs> ha ha. Thanks for letting me know softly. I'm like, I love that. <laughs> it's such a great thing, which is like, you know what? I'm just trying to teach you to slow down and, and STFU, which people can, if they don't know that acronym, they can you can Google it. that up. <laughs> yeah, they can Google that. But, you know, as, as lovely as it is to get messages like that and to see the enthusiasm around it, I also know that not everybody has picked up the book, looked at the questions and gone, Mm. oh, I can start using these. And then they do that. Mm. You know, Dominic, you sounds like you did that. You're like, oh, I I can incorporate these and Mm. it's made a difference. Mm. But there's a bunch of people who must have read that book and gone, you know what, it's it's entertaining and it's fine. I mean, some people hated the book. There's literally a woman who wrote, this is the worst book ever written on Amazon, which is my favorite review I've (laughs) ever got. Her name is Sunny, ironically, Sunny Davis. And I liked it so much that I actually, I printed it in the cover of the, the advice trap. I'm like, I'm going to put a selection of reviews, most of which are good. And then I'm going to put Sunny Davis in there as well. But there are a lot of people who read the book and go, look, it's entertaining. And I get, I get this in theory, but in practice, it's really hard for me to change my behavior. Mm. I keep reverting back to telling people what to do, to giving them advice, to mm. leaping in and trying to rescue them and save them. Why is it so hard for me to step up? Because I buy into 
the idea that this coaching is stuff is valuable and could be helpful for me as a leader. I just am finding it really hard to change. And that's what the advice trap is about. It's not a rant against advice because I think advice has its place and is, you know, honestly, it's a key way that our civilization grows, mm. giving advice at the right time. Mm. What I'm trying to do is attack the default response where no matter what's being said, you get triggered into thinking that your job is to have a solution, opinion, an advice, an idea, and to offer it up. And it's to go a little deeper into the behavior change stuff, which is like, what's really getting in the way of you staying curious? And it mm. turns out there is something, and it's called your advice monster. Mm-hmm. So this advice monster, Michael, how do we recognize it? What does it look like? <laughs> yeah, you know, you will almost certainly recognize it from this description. Somebody starts talking. And even though you showed up with an intent to stay curious, as soon as they start talking, your advice monster looms up out of the dark of your own subconscious and goes, aha, I'm going to add some value to this conversation. <laughs> and before you know it, you're, you've interrupted them and you've started telling them stuff. Or maybe you've just moved into the fake listening phase where you're like, you're nodding your head and you're looking kind of vaguely interested. But in your head, you're like, I'm not listening to them. I'm just waiting for them to shut up so I can tell them my really good idea. And if you've ever experienced any of that, then you've met your advice monster because we all have them. Mm-hmm. And in fact, writing the book, I kind of figured out there were three different personas that the advice monsters can have. And actually, most of us have all three of these in differing kind of weightings. But the three advice monsters are tell it, save it, and control it. So tell it has convinced you that the way you add value is to have the answer. In fact, you need to have all the answers to all the things. And if you don't have all the answers to all the things, you fail as a human being, as a leader, as a manager. And of course, those around you are going to fail as well, because if you don't give them the answer, they're just, they're doomed. Mm, They're going to fail, yep. Exactly. And of course, when you hear me sad like that, you kind of know that it's impossible to have all the answers to all the things. And I find this for people, particularly at the start of their kind of leading and managing career, where they're like, oh, my job is to know everything. And I'm like, your job's not to know everything because it's impossible. And actually the stuff that you do know is out of date. And the stuff that you do know that's not out of date is better described on Google. (laughs) So you don't need to know. You know, knowing everything is just a facade, a shimmerer. So let's tell it. I've got to have all the answers. Save it is I've got to save all the people. I've got to rescue them. I've got to make sure that nobody struggles or stumbles or finds it hard or finds it difficult. I've got to protect everybody from all failures all the time. If I don't keep everybody safe, if I don't rescue everybody, then they fail, which means that I fail. Uh. And of course, this too is impossible. It's exhausting and it's frustrating. But lots of us recognize this. I think I'm personally am very happily child-free. But what I've heard is that for lots of parents, they're like, oh, yeah, I get that. Mm. I get that with my kids. But so often, you know, there's a dynamic. I talk about it in the coaching habit called the, the Cartman drama triangle, where it says, look, dysfunctional relationships have these three dysfunctional roles, the persecutor, the victim, and the rescuer. And they kind of all trigger each other and you bounce around this drama triangle. And when you ask people to self-identify which of those three roles rings true for them, the persecutor, the victim, or the rescuer, Mm. most people, like 90%, self-identify with rescuer. Mm -hmm. 
I leap in, I overwork, I try and keep everybody safe, I take it all keep on myself, I, I take too much responsibility, and it's exhausting and it's frustrating. And honestly, it creates victims and it creates persecutors, and it's impossible. So that's the second advice monster. Number one, tell it. I've got to have all the answers. Number two, save it. I've got to rescue all the people. And then the third one is the kind of the most cunning, <laughs> the most insidious of the three, perhaps, and it's save it. And what Save It believes is my job is to maintain control at all stages. I mean, it's like never take your hands off the wheel, never allow anybody to lean in, never allow anybody to take the autonomy or control, you know, maintain control at all. Because if you take your hands off the steering wheel, even for a minute, then disaster happens, uh-huh. chaos arrives, the car goes off the track, whatever you want to describe it. That's control it. Now, of course, it's impossible to control actually Everything. most things. <laughs> you know, yeah, right. uh, lots of us know the, um, is it the COVID thing about what you can control, what you can influence, and what you can neither control nor influence. Uh-huh. And it turns out we can control very little. We can control our own responses to the way that we feel. That's mm. largely it. Mm. We can make choices about what we act on. But the advice monster loves to have you say, look, no, 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 keep control on everything. And for those of us that have ever bumped into a, you know, a micromanager, somebody who's unwilling to share, somebody who's unwilling to empower, that's that advice monster playing out. Mm-hmm. And I think at times we all see those monsters, probably all three of those monsters at different times, creeping yeah, up for I, I mean, us. I certainly do. I mean, I know all of those three monsters pretty well, annoyingly enough. That's why you're an expert <laughs> you know, in writing the book. <laughs> well, you know that saying, take my advice because I'm not using it. You know, I, I've worked pretty hard at it and I'm not, I'm not bad at it, but for sure those three monsters show up, particularly when I'm living in my own parents' house. Then, you know, when you go back to your childhood home, you revert to the age you were when you left it, which was 17 for me. So I'm basically, you know, a 17-year-old acting out in a 52-year-old's body at the moment. It's it's not ugly. It's not pretty. It's pretty ugly. <laughs> I love it. Actually, there was a quote in the book, Michael, that was giving someone advice is like giving them foreign currency. You know, what do I do with it? You're kind of standing there. I love that. You know, because it's yeah, very it's so, vivid. It's so good, isn't it? Yeah. I, I can't remember who said that, but I loved it because it, it somehow captured the, look, this advice somehow feels like it should be valuable. Yeah. It's not valuable at all. I can't actually spend this or use this, even though you think I can. Yeah, I love it. So, Michael, how do we start taming these advice monsters? You know, if we notice them and we know maybe, yeah, I I do go into the save it or control it or tell it kind of advice monster. How do we start fighting these monsters, if you will, or (laughs) taming them? Yeah. Well, this is actually a bigger task than it sounds. Mm. But starting to kind of own up to your advice monster is a really really great, great way to kind of begin the process. And, you know, if people are interested, if, they're, if their fancy is caught by, that, by this idea, if you go to theadvicetrap.com, which is the, the website of the book, there's actually a quiz you can take to find out which of the advice monsters is kind of most compelling for you right now. Mm-hmm. And you'll get some tactics and strategies about that advice monster and the other advice monsters as well. So that's at theadvicetrap.com. But I think... Step number one, recognizing and going, ah, yeah, (laughs) I think I have an advice monster. Now you mention it. And then there's a couple of really powerful things you can do. Step number one is to say, what do I get from this Uh advice monster? What are the benefits? What are the prizes for me? Uh You know, and the prizes you get are typically short-term, ego-driven, 
you know, feel good in the moment stuff. It's like, I feel this, I feel like I'm the smart person in the room. I feel like I'm in control. I feel like I've beaten off chaos. I feel like I'm adding value. I feel that people respect me. I feel like I have power. All of this sort of stuff where you're like, that, they're all kind of good, but you can see behind all of those there's a price that's being paid. And that's actually the second step, I think, Dominic, which is mm. to go, and what's the price that gets paid mm. by me, mm. by others, by this organization for me having my advice trap, mm. you know, my, my advice monster on the loose? And it's like, it'll broadly fall into things like you are overwhelmed, you are exhausted, you feel crushed by the responsibility you brought on yourself. Your team feels disempowered. Your team mm -hmm. feels frustrated. Your team doesn't bring the real challenges to you. You're stuck on the limit of your own advice. You don't allow the serendipity of the future to come in. You don't empower other people to grow. You don't give them the autonomy and the confidence and the competence and the self-sufficiency that they need to be able to show up and be at their best so that they can do their best in the work that they do. You know, I know the work your organization does is so much about kind of human flourishing. Uh -huh. And part of this question about what's the price that I'm paying and we're paying for me to have the short-term comfort of your advice monster is you are diminishing the flourishing of the human beings who are around you. Yeah, you're spot on, Michael. I think anyone listening to this who's, you know, most of them are probably quite familiar with our circumplex model, measuring thinking and behavior. Would be yep. all the things you're saying, they're slotting them into the different styles because they just line up so well with it. Um, right. And that's why I think this book's so useful for people because it's actually quite a practical guide on, well, what can you do about it? <laughs> you know, what can you actually do to change that advice monster? And yeah, I, you know, if, uh, the practicality is a really important part for me because there's a lot of theory written about mm. stuff and it's really hard to act on theory. I've tried to give processes and guidelines around, look, here's some stuff you can work through to start rewiring yourself a little bit. Mm. And you know, one of the concepts that's in the book that's helpful for people to understand is the difference between easy change and hard change, mm -hmm. which is, and it's really this that opened this, made me want to write this book, because you have to know that writing a book is, it's a terrible decision to make. <laughs> books, they're really hard to write. It's relatively easy to write a not very good book. It's really hard to write a really good book. You have to write it and rewrite it and rewrite it. And it's always terrible before it gets half decent, before it gets <laughs> decent. And then most books don't even sell that many. So mm -hmm. you've often spent a year or two trying to write something that, you know, barely anybody actually looks at or reads. But I was like, this has got to be helpful for people. So I think at theadvicetrap.com again, there's actually a, a kind of a process, a videoed process that I take people through to go, here's a way of you actually working through a process to identify and tame your advice monster. And if people want to go a little deeper, they're welcome to jump onto that. You don't even need the book. Yeah, well, there you go. Though I would recommend the book as well. Hey, Thank Michael, you. one thing, you know, with the advice monsters, you started talking about for coaches or for managers doing kind of coaching, you know, their job is to stop seeking solutions and start finding the challenges. Right, so it's uncovering what is the real challenge here for you, uh, right. which might have given away one of the other questions. Um, you have given you, you've articulated it beautifully, <laughs> which is you know the the focus question. I mean, the the idea behind that question, Dominic, is to go look. So often in our organizational life, we're so busy trying to solve the wrong problems mm. because we get seduced into thinking that the first challenge that shows up mm. is the real challenge, and it so rarely is. So that question, the focus question. What's the real challenge here for you? 
is, I think, number three. So now people have four of the questions. They got the kickstart question, what's on your mind? The learning question, what was most useful here for you? They got the best coaching question in the world, the or question and what else? And they've got the focus question, what's the real challenge here for you? So four questions down, three to track down. <laughs> there you go. And what I love about that or, or the challenge about that is, you know, how do you get to that real challenge? Because I think that's the thing that trips people up is we can talk. It feels like a coaching conversation. It felt like it was pretty good, but maybe we didn't really get to the real challenge under it. And in the advice trap, you talk about some foggy fires, you call them. Yeah. And we don't have time to go through all of them, but I loved these because they were so relatable. I was sitting there like, oh my God, Michael's <laughs> been sitting in on my sessions because I've done all yeah. of these. You know, one that stuck out for me was coaching the ghost, which I think yes. comes up all the time for people. So oh, what's that? I love that. Yeah. I mean, like they're called fogifiers because the goal is to get clear on what the challenge is. And I think I was thinking back to that old, old movie, American Werewolf in London, where the the Americans wander off the path and the moors and the mist closes in and you can't see anything. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, it's like that. And what we're trying to do is clear the mist, clear the fog, so get rid of the fogifiers. And, you know, the, the solution to getting clear, I can give you the technical solution and it's pretty straightforward. You go, what's the real challenge here for you? So that's the focus question. Then you go, what else? What else is a challenge? And then you go, what else is a challenge? And then you go, okay, and maybe you go, is there anything else that's a challenge here? And then you just repeat the first question and go, okay, so what's the real challenge here for you? Mm. And even though this sounds kind of hokey and almost impossible when you're listening to this postcard, it's amazing how well this works. This script is just a process for them to get deeper into defining what the real challenge is. Mm. But as Dominic's saying, what gets in the way is a bunch of stuff, some of which is like your stuff. It's not them that's mm. the problem, it's you. Mm. And coaching the ghost is a really common one. This is what it sounds like. I go to Dominic because we're having a conversation and I go, hey, Dominic, what's on your mind? And he goes, ah, it's Maureen. She's driving me nuts. <laughs> the worst. And I'm like, oh, really? So what's, tell me more about Maureen. And Dominic's well, like, oh, yeah, tell gladly. <laughs> let me tell you. Maureen, blah, 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 this, Maureen, blah, blah, that. And I'm like, God, she sounds like a nightmare. What else? <laughs> and she's like, oh, yeah, Maureen is blah, blah, blah. I'm like, hey, you're such a good guy, Dominic. I can't believe that you're even managing this. What else about Maureen? Blah, blah. And we have this righteous indignation conversation <laughs> for 25 minutes about Maureen and about terrible and unreliable and you can't trust her and she's dragging Dominic down. And what we've actually done is we've just had a kind of bitch and moan session about Maureen. And it's been kind of maybe tiny bit helpful in that Dominic gets to kind of blow off some steam. <laughs> yep. But in terms of moving us forward on a solution here, no progress has been made. And actually, what I want to be asking is I go, right, I hear about Maureen. She sounds difficult. Dominic, what's the real challenge here for you in dealing with Maureen? Mm. And what I'm doing is I'm bringing the spotlight away from Maureen because I don't care about Maureen, quite frankly. And I, all I care about is how Dominic is going to figure out how to deal with Maureen. Mm. The person I'm coaching is Dominic. It's not Maureen. Mm. But so often we get trapped into coaching the ghost and we spend our whole time talking about the third entity, which often enough is a person like Maureen. But sometimes it's a situation, mm. you know, the- In this company. Well, that's, yeah, I right. guess, big the, picturing, the, yeah. The nuclear reactor is 
is melting. Mm. Oh no, tell me more about the nuclear <laughs> reactor. Well, it was installed in 1956 and it's like, it's on the seawall, but it's got this thing there and it's, you know, painted in green. And I'm like, what else about the nuclear reactor? Well, you know, it's got two cores, not three cores. That's an interesting thing. And we spend 25 minutes talking about the nuclear reactor. I'm like, I don't care about the nuclear reactor. I care about how Dominic's dealing with the nuclear reactor. I know, Dominic, what's the real challenge here for you about the nuclear reactor? Well, Blah, blah, blah. But what's the real challenge? But what else is a challenge? But what, okay, Donald, what's the real challenge here for you? Oh, the real challenge here for me is I have a tough relationship with my boss and I'm afraid to bring him bad news because he always bites my head off. Mm. Oh, it's nothing to wow. do with the nuclear reactor. It's about this. This is the challenge in the moment. So this idea of being aware of being seduced into coaching the ghost is a really powerful insight. Yeah, I, I love that, Michael. And there's... There's five other ones as well, which I'll relate to, but you're going to have to read the book to get those. (laughs) Michael, thanks so much for your time today. Um, It's been a real pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed the books. And for our audience, what was the most useful thing here for you? Exactly. There you go. We just closed it down. Tell somebody. Tell somebody. Yeah, exactly. Tell tell your spouse, tell your kids, tell your colleagues, whoever it was, because that will help you learn. Thanks so much for your time today, Michael. My pleasure, Dominic. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Culture Bites. If you enjoy the show, remember to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, leave us a review. It helps other people to find the show. If you have a question you'd like us to answer, email podcast at human-synergistics.com.au. We'd love to answer it. This podcast is copyrighted by Human Synergistics Australia. All rights reserved. To learn more about what we do, visit human-synergistics.com.au.